Amen. Let's begin reading uh, the full text together, all 12 verses. James says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, a perfect person able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, going back to the beginning of our text, I want you to notice that James says we all stumble in many ways. And then he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says. The point of this entire section is that we are prone to stumble in what we say with our mouths. The word stumble is used in the New Testament to indicate stumbling or falling down morally, falling into sin. The Greeks would often use this word to speak of somebody falling into misery or some negative life change. And James, true to form, calls it like it is. We've noticed he likes to do this. He just puts it right out there that we all stumble. Remember what Paul says. He says, for all have sinned. But James says something similar to believers. He says, we all have stumbled in many ways, James says. We're saved by God's grace, but we still struggle with falling into sin. But this Lord's Day that we have called Father's Day, I don't think it would be inappropriate for me to remind us that in our day and age, and especially in the United States, fatherhood itself has stumbled. And as I begin to look closely at what James is telling us here, I want to admonish, admonish encourage a dads, husbands, young men in particular, Because the enemy wants nothing more than for you to stumble as men who are called to lead morally in God's creation and among the people of God as God's new creation 
the church. Proverbs 4 begins with these words, Hear, O son, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, and the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. As fathers in particular, but also as men in in general, as leaders in the church, these words caution us and encourage us. Yes, they're written to admonish sons, but in order for a father to admonish his sons, he has to be the kind of father whose words and example are able to be followed. These words from God exhort fathers to be the kind of men who can say to their children, if you hold fast my words, if you do as I say, if you'll listen to me, you will know how to live. But these words must also be backed by a moral life. And and men, young and old, let me remind you that Satan wants nothing more than to see men of God fall into moral ruin. He wants to corrupt the minds and affections of men. He's after everybody, but he's after men. He wants to destroy our homes by drawing down on our influence and breaking up our families. He wants to assure that there is no one to provide faithful spiritual leadership not only for our homes, but also for our churches. And if I might add this, also for our nation. And Satan and his followers have been highly successful, especially of late in the United States. When you think of our nation's history of men in government and men leading churches and families with godly biblical conviction, and then you look out across our country at what's happening right now, and you see this profound moral decay In America, we're watching the second half of Romans being lived out in front of our very eyes. June, they call Pride Month. That's code for the celebration of evil, the celebration of reprobate minds, the celebration of the uh, the suppression of truth in unrighteousness, the celebration of darkened hearts. And this celebration is paraded, paraded before us through the media, and at every level of government and every level of the military. And I know it makes you heavy in your hearts, and we long to reach people with the gospel who need the light of truth. And we also long for the Lord to return and vindicate his name and vindicate his people. But realize that the celebration of pride is also the celebration of the demise of the family. That is not coincidental, and that is not accidental. Those promoting this debased wickedness know exactly what they are doing. They want to twist and destroy what God has created and blesses, and they despise the notion of manhood and backbone and fathers and husbands and young men standing for biblical truth and leading and others following them. They're outraged that you and I would hold such outdated ideas. And they're not willing for you to disagree with them, even if you never rebuke them. In their minds, you're not fit to be a member of the society if you not only agree with them, but you, 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 you celebrate alongside of them. So on this Father's Day, this Lord's Day, let me urge you as fathers and husbands and young men to be courageous, 
to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, as Jesus tells us, to stay true to God's word, to lead with conviction and do not let the corruption of the culture erode your love for doing what is right by God's grace. Because the pressure to stumble into sin and the opportunity to sin have never been more extensive. And this is what happens in a culture that celebrates so much evil. It's tempting to start measuring our purity against the immorality of the culture. And we look pretty good when we we make our own scale. But rather, we need to measure our morality against God's holiness. And this pressure to measure ourselves against the world has corrupted the hearts and minds of those men who are supposed to lead. Eight years ago this summer, a group calling themselves the Impact Team announced that they had hacked into the Ashley Madison database and had stolen the names of all of the men and women who had made profile pages. Now, for those of you who don't know or those who don't remember, Ashley Madison is the name of a morally corrupt commercial website that exists even today that is set up like a dating service, but its specialty is enabling married men and women to secretly meet other people for the purpose of committing adultery, to help them destroy their marriages and their families. Men and women can create an account and set up a profile page and select a region of the country they live in and start shopping for someone who wants to commit the same sin. Ashley Madison's slogan literally reads, life is short, have an affair. But as some of you may uh, recall, the group who hacked their site eight years ago, Impact Team, stole the user information of all of the men and women worldwide who had been unfaithful to their spouses or who who were searching for someone actively for that purpose. And in July of that summer, 2015, they issued Ashley Madison a public ultimatum. They told the website they must end their shameful business and shut down the site or impact team would release the names of their users to the public. Well, it was a very intense month that summer for all of the users on that list who did not want it discovered that they had created profile pages and had cheated on their spouses or were planning to do so. But by August of that summer, the company who owned the website refused to shut it down. So Impact Team released the names worldwide, 36 million of them, of those who were secretly betraying their marriages and their families. Now, wouldn't it have been a cause for rejoicing and thanking the Lord if on that list had never been discovered any devoted believer, anybody who had professed the name of Jesus Christ? But sadly, that was not the case. The list included professing Christians, and not just professing Christians, but worse, Christian men in significant positions of leadership in churches and seminaries and nationally acclaimed authors and bloggers and Christian celebrities, as we call them sometimes. Some of you may remember, for example, that the Ashley Madison list included Josh Duggar, and that's what began to unravel his true character and brought the popular reality show 19 Kids and Counting to a a screeching halt. But even before the dreaded list was released that summer, the periodical Christianity Today estimated that about 400 pastors in the U.S. and Canada would likely be resigning their pulpits as soon as the names were known. And regrettably, 
that estimate was not too far off as between three or 400 pastors resigned that summer. Now, it was really an act of God's grace that these pastors and Christian leaders were called into accountability for their sin, an act of grace in their lives as well as, as the life of their congregations. What I'd like to focus on for a moment is the fact that it was those men in positions of leadership who had set themselves up as the standard of marital fidelity. One of them had a, a blog he did every week with his wife on marriage. They set themselves up as the standard. They're the ones that bore the brunt of the harshest judgment. In fact, there were people who diligently scoured the list, specifically looking for men in positions of spiritual leadership so they could make their known sin to the congregations and to the world and publicly shame them for their hypocrisy. Now think about this. There were literally millions of names on that list, men men and women who were unfaithful, who no doubt had to answer for their actions. But only the people involved in their lives will ever know about that. On the contrast, those in positions of leadership, especially those responsible to preach or teach on what the Bible says about holy living, those who said, in essence, hear my instruction, be attentive that you may gain insight, do not forsake my, keeping, uh, my teaching, keep my commandments and live. People who said that, those men, are the ones whose names everybody took note of. And to this day, a lot of their names are remembered by people who know about this whole fiasco. That brings us back to James 3. Notice again how James begins. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. That is, those who are in positions of leadership. And and, and teachers means one thing to us in our culture, especially in that first century culture. Teaching was a very big deal, especially among Jews. To be the teacher was to be highly respected. Don't many of you become teachers, getting in positions of leadership, instructing others what to do, how to live, what to believe. Why? For the very reason that we who teach, James says, and he includes himself here, notice, we will be judged with greater strictness. The word strictness is the word judgment. Those who are in the sanctuary or the classroom or the small group or the convention hall, who sit and are taught, who open their Bibles and are instructed, they have a right, in fact, they have a biblical duty to hold those accountable who teach them, to judge them with greater strictness. Some leaders fall, they're overwhelmed with their shame, they're truly repentant, they step aside from ministry, they realize they've ceased to be the role that God wants set up in front of his people. But when one of their teachers stumbles, stumbles morally and does not seem to repent, but goes on with his life or does a preaching tour around the world, preaching on the fact that God's gracious and then takes a pulpit again somewhere, I'm not as much upset with him as I am about the congregation who would let that happen and goes on with his life, and even tries teaching again in some of their contexts, though in some cases he has caused devastating damage to the name of Christ and has hurt and disappointed God's people, and in some cases has caused people to abandon the faith. Those who sit under his instruction should be morally outraged. Now, we should understand that James is not saying to Christians that they should never be teachers. We have to have teachers. We have to have preachers. 
In fact, as you can see from all 12 verses of the text, teaching is not even the main point. His main point is the devastating power of the tongue to commit and spread evil. But if by way of introduction, we can just spend our time this morning focusing on these first two verses and then pick up the rest of the study next week, there are at least three reasons, I think, that James uses teaching as a point of departure for speaking about the tongue. And I've lifted, listed these in your worship bulletin if it helps you to track with what I'm saying here. Why, why does James mention teaching as his point of departure or his jumping off place to talk about the tongue? Well, there's three reasons. First of all, I think James is playing off the Jewish desire to become the respected teachers of their, in their new communities into which they had been scattered. James could have said to them, I know that many of you grew up aspiring to the position of rabbi in your Jewish culture. And they did, many of them. And even now, James might tell them, you yearn to be a teacher in your Christian community. James says, let me warn you, that position comes with a high price. Because if you teach and tell others how to live and how to follow God's word, but you yourself fail to do so, you will be judged more harshly than the one who is merely the learner the student. We're reading through the New Testament right now. Right now we're reading through Paul's letters in chronological order. I do not look at the text ahead of time of reading. Sometimes I do, but most of the time I don't. Uh, but we have a great example of this right here in Romans chapter 2 as Micah was reading it. Uh, Paul is, is kind of saying the same thing here that James is saying. In, in Romans chapter 3, he says, you know, you, you call yourselves teachers, guides of the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. That's what you think you are, Paul says. But you then who teach, do you not teach yourself? Well, you preach against stealing. Do you turn around and steal? If you say you're not supposed to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You say we should abhor idols. Do you turn around and rob the temple? This is exactly what Paul is telling them here in Romans 3. And and James is saying the same thing to those who would aspire to be this teacher. So did the Jewish people desire to be rabbis and teachers? The answer is yes. I mean, to be a rabbi was the most respected position in the Jewish community. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23. He says a lot of things to the Pharisees, but this is very interesting where he says, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi. A, a, new, a new rabbi gets home, and his wife said, how did, how did the teaching go today? Really good. Two people called me rabbi when I was walking through the marketplace today. I mean, that's a badge of honor for them. They're, they're brought up in that kind of culture. And rem- remember, I didn't remind you today, for those of you who are, are, are guests here, but we're, th- this is the earliest letter in the New Testament, and, and there's, there, as far as we can tell, no Gentiles are being addressed in this letter, and hardly any to speak of who have come to Christ yet. It's a very early letter. So this is, this is a Jewish culture who've, who's come to faith in Christ, and James is trying to say, here's how you live out your faith. And, and Jesus says to, to, to the, his crowd, you know, you, the, the, these Pharisees love to be called rabbi. But Jesus also says, you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. I don't think, by the way, that Jesus is saying here that that you should never be called rabbi, that that's wrong, any more than James is saying you should never be a teacher. But what Jesus is saying is that you shouldn't itch after that dream 
or the opportunity to be a lord over people and to have people heap accolades upon you and to be honored and exalted in a position. In fact, let me say this, the very reason many respected pastors and other Christian leaders are tempted to fall into sin in the first place and it grieves us when we see it happen. And it's a warning to all of us who teach and preach. The, the, the reason so many of them fall in the first place is that they allow people to give them so much honor that nobody would ever dare question their integrity. Oh, oh, no, 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 that's not what's... Oh, pa- that would never be true of pastor. We don't have... No, don't look twice at that. There are so many men who have fallen because they have a shield around them and nobody is allowed to question. Nobody's allowed to ask what is going on or they're shushed up. They've created this, this shield around them. And, and men and young men, if we ever get to the point where we create the shield around us and nobody's ever able to look over our shoulder, nobody's ever able to call us into accountability, we are all in grave danger. James knew that these scattered believers, now away from Jerusalem, where famous rabbis like Gamaliel resided, would be setting up new communities of Jewish believers and that the men would have a great desire to rise to the level of a respected teacher or elder in their community. But by opening up themselves to that position, they're also opening themselves up to the possibility of censure for not practicing what they preach for not living out what is going on through their tongues. And that brings us to a second reason that James uses the idea of being a teacher as a point of departure to talk about the tongue. What he's warning of in these opening verses is exactly the same thing he's been emphasizing again in the the entire letter, living up to your faith. If you set yourself up as a teacher or you allow your community to bestow upon you that honor, you had better live up to that faith. In fact, remember, James has already used the tongue as an example of this faith in chapter 1. Remember verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious, and James seems to be hinting at that, that person in the community who's you know, uh, if, if, sort of holding his head above, above everybody else, and everybody says, oh, that guy's really religious. If anybody thinks he's religious, but he doesn't bridle his tongue. He refuses to be accountable in this very moral area, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. And James is saying here in chapter 3, you can style yourself as a teacher of religion, but if you refuse to control that articulator inside of your mouth, if you curse or lie or gossip or gripe or backbite or slander or any one of dozens of sins we can commit with our mouths, then you have no reason to think that your faith is real. You may actually believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you don't have evidence in your life to to make you confident that you believe. And this is true for all of us. But it is especially important for teachers to recognize or any person in any position who is called to know the word and obey the word as an example to others, be it the father of a family or the pastor of a church. But there's a third reason that James takes his point of departure from desire to be a teacher. And that is bridling the tongue is one of the most important virtues we must learn as believers. Because for teachers, it is absolutely essential. Stumbling with the tongue is something we cannot do. If you're a teacher, your tongue is an occupational hazard. 
because you're speaking all the time. In fact, let's go back to verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James is calling attention to a sin that is so universal. No one escapes indictment. We've all sinned with our tongue. If you raise your hand this morning and say, I've never sinned with my tongue, well, you just lied. Okay, So, so we see one right there. Wait, nobody escapes this. One of the hardest things to do is control your tongue. James is literally saying, if you are able to completely control your tongue, so you are one of those people who'd say, you know what, as far as I know, by God's grace, I haven't sinned with my tongue this whole year yet. Then James says, that must mean you've bridled your whole body as well. You probably can't find any other sin in your, in your life as well, if you can make that. Because it is so hard to control your tongue. If you can do that perfectly, you can keep anything else about your body in check. In fact, the, uh, the, the tongue is so hard to control is one of the reasons the Bible often uses the sins of the tongue to represent human sin in general. Remember when Isaiah says, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And, and, and the seraphim takes the, the, the uh, coal from the altar and says, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is purged and your sin is taken away. And Psalm 34, 12 poses the question, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may say good? And the answer comes, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. When Paul gives evidence in Romans 3 of the fact that all have sinned, remember what the scripture he draws on as one of the proofs of that? He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. By contrast, when Peter wants to speak of the sinlessness of Christ, he focuses our attention on the words of Christ. Peter says that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges, judges justly. But be, because of the, of the sins of the tongue are so hard to control, the fact that Jesus, even under the duress and persecution of crucifixion, did not so much as answer back to his mockers. He never even uttered, muttered at them under his breath. He knew what was coming for them, but he never mentioned it. It shows how absolutely sinless Jesus was. The sins of the tongue are very difficult to control. So what do teachers do? They talk, and they talk, and they talk. Some of you are thinking, when when he's going to stop talking this morning? You go to a typical 50-minute classroom time, and guess who's doing most of the talking? You come to Sunday school class, unless there's intentionally a lot of interaction, which we do both kinds of teaching here, which is really good. Uh, the main teacher is doing most of the talking. You come to a Sunday morning worship service in any church where the proclamation of the word is important and central to that community, and guess who's doing most of the talking? I mean, a sermon is nothing more than, than, than an uninterrupted, sustained, one-sided conversation. That's a lot of words a teacher speaks and a lot of opportunity to say the wrong thing uh, with my mouth. I have some of my former church members here from... Bethany Bible Church in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And they might remember that when I resigned from that church, 
my, uh, the, the guy who runs our sound, I didn't know this, but he had been keeping track for years about all of the embarrassing things I had accidentally said when I'd become tongue-tied or I had mispronounced some words in some unfortunate ways, and, and most of them I would not repeat today uh, here right now. Uh, and, and the night that they had this farewell for me, he had a montage of all those slips of the tongue over the years set up playing in a loop. And people could go into the room and sit there with their, with their snacks and have a good old laugh about everything that Pastor Greg said in 13 years uh, from the pulpit. I was like, wow, thanks a lot. Uh, but how would you like somebody following you around recording everything you said all of the time? But more to James' point There are a lot of sins that preachers and teachers can commit with their mouths even while they're speaking and preaching publicly. Have you ever heard a speaker talk pridefully or brag about his or her accomplishments? Or listen to speakers who make themselves seem very important by going on and on about themselves and about their families half the time? Every illustration is about themselves and their family. Have you ever heard a speaker condescend to his or her audience, talk down to them or disrespect them? Have you ever heard a speaker belittle someone he disagrees with or attack an opponent's character or mock his ideas unfairly without extending appropriate grace? And there's a time to say very harsh things. Even Jesus in the passage in Matthew 23 I referenced before he excoriates the Pharisees, say, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. You need to respect them for their position, but do not do as they do because they teach, but they don't follow what they teach. Jesus is a master example of public discourse with grace. Have you heard a teacher act as if he is superior because of his knowledge, or this, so therefore he's better than his audience? Have you ever known a speaker or preacher to scourge his audience so soundly that everybody goes away feeling very discouraged and beat up? That saddens me when I hear that. Have you ever heard a speaker embarrass audience members in particular by calling them out or berating them or belittling them in front of the whole class or worse, in front of a whole auditorium? Have you ever known that a speaker or teacher was lying to you Have you heard a speaker or teacher admonish an audience to do something that you knew he was not doing himself or that he was doing something worse, making what he says hypocritical? I have witnessed every one of those sins and more in the context of Christian ministry. And in 35 years as a youth pastor, college speech teacher, no less, and then a pastor and then a seminary professor, I have committed many of these sins along the way. I know what it's like to be smitten in my spirit after saying something in a public setting where the Lord says to me later, that was not right. That was not loving. That was not true. That was not humble. That was arrogant. And James says to these Jewish believers scattered by persecution, struggling to find their way in the wider world, establishing themselves among brothers and sisters in Christ in a new community, he says to them, do not lightly aspire to be the teacher in your assembly. Not unless you're down to be held more accountable for everything you say and everything you do. Not unless you're willing to open yourself up to multiple charges of the misuse of that instrument that so often behaves in a way that is not pleasing to God. 
but he's speaking to those who aspire to this position in the community in order to warn the entire community about the danger and misuse of the tongue. James is telling all of us, bridle your tongue diligently. 